Let me pray for us now as we turn to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for, uh, for you speaking. You don't leave us in the dark. And we thank you today for that one crucial, special moment in time, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that changes our past, our future and our present. Father, we ask this morning that you would fill us with all joy and hope in believing, that you would call us close to yourself and that you would teach us the right and proper way to relate to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Times of war are times of uncertainty. You might have heard of a a man called Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. Uh, Winston Churchill is the uh, usual way of calling him, his name. Uh, He was the Prime Minister of the UK from 1940 to 1945. He was very famous for for his sharp tongue, for his quick wit. Uh, He was at a party once, a dinner party, and a lady approached him, a lady by the name of uh, Lady Nancy Astor, and she said to him, Sir, if you were my husband, I would give you poison. To which Winston Churchill replied, Ma'am, if I were your husband, I'd take it. He was at another dinner. I don't know how he ever got anything done as a Prime Minister. All the stories begin at a dinner party and a lady said to him, I don't know quite why, but anyway, he was at another dinner party, another lady approached him and said, Sir, you are drunk. To which Winston Churchill replied, Yes, ma'am, and you are ugly. But in the morning, I will be sober. Okay, sure. He's famous for a lot of fun things. But what he's really famous for is for being the Prime Minister of the UK through World War II through a time of really high uncertainty, through a time of bitterness and hardship and suffering. And Winston Churchill was famous for communicating certainty. He was a a pillar of strength and determination, even though there really was no reason to be sure of anything. Times of war are times of uncertainty. You don't know when the war will end. You don't know who's going to win. All you have are bombs and food scarcity and death in every household. Extreme and horrible conditions. Really, the only certainty in war is pain. Whatever kind of war it is that you're in, whether it's warfare between nations or warfare between neighbours, I mean, it might not be guns and bombs, but even warfare within families. The only certainty is pain. Now, if you were able to cast your mind back two weeks ago, it feels like it was a very long time ago, but Joe finished the first in our series on time by reminding us that we are at war. Humanity collectively and individually are at war, and we're at war with God by our very nature. We don't love God. We don't thank God. We don't rejoice in his presence. We resent his intrusion. We reject his authority. We have declared war against God. And it's not one-sided. I mean, you could well imagine humans declaring war against God would be like an ant declaring war against me. I probably wouldn't even notice, would I? Hey, look, there's a funny little ant. It's waving at me, right? I'm going to keep going now. I It's not like that with God. It's not like he, humans, whatever, whatever it is that they're getting up to down there. No, he knows our declaration of war. He knows our rebellion and he is angry against it. 
He has unleashed, we heard two weeks ago, he's already unleashed some of his judgments. And so we heard about the futility of life. Do you remember that word? That got, we heard it so many times. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is, well, that's one of the judgments of God. Death is part of the judgment of God. And a day is coming when there will be a reckoning with even greater consequences the other side of it. However much we might try to ignore this reality, we're trying to escape it by just burying our head in the sand. We, we go and seek for meaning and purpose in, in the things of this world. However much we might try, in the end, our life is one of sin and suffering and death and futility. And it's all tied up in this war that we began. And we can't end it. And we can't win it. Cheery start, isn't it? But it's a necessary backdrop to understand this one crucial, critical moment in time that shapes everything. It changes the past. It gives us a different future. And it tells us how to live in every moment in between. One moment in history that it is all anchored in. And we read about it in that passage in Romans 5 and in verse 6. If you've got your Bible, open it up again, Romans 5. Keep it handy. We're going we're to read through chunks of it again, little bits. and We're going to jump around a bit. But we see that one critical moment that changes everything in verse 6. You see, Paul writes... At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time. Just the right time in God's plans. This happened according to his purpose. It wasn't random. And at just the right time for us, when we were still powerless, traitors, enemies who'd begun a war with no hope of winning it, no hope of ending it, no hope of getting out of the consequences of this war. While we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now just pause for a moment. They are very easy words to say. And I suspect, you know the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. I suspect that they are words that we hear and we go, oh yeah, Jesus died for sinners. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Um, let's, let's get on to the interesting stuff now. Teach me something new, David. Uh, no, this is the heart of it. This is the moment. Jesus died for the ungodly. For me. For you. Jesus died on our behalf while we were enemies of God. He was substituted for us. What we deserved fell upon him. And because it fell upon him, we are safe. Do you know the safe place to be in a bushfire? I don't know if you planned this morning on learning some bushfire survival tips. Uh, Bear grills, eat your heart out. Anyway, when a bushfire is coming your way, what do you do to get safe? We have some pretty horrible bushfires in Australia. Uh, I mean, you know, if it gets going, good 100 metre tall flame, 100 kilometre wide front, and it runs at 100 kilometres per hour. You try and get away from that. You might have seen the pictures last year. You remember the Californian bushfires and just utter devastation everywhere. Where is the safe place? If you've been caught too late, you can't run away, it's coming, you've got minutes, what are you going to do? 
Here's the tip. Start the biggest fire you can. I'm serious. Now, don't do it if there isn't a bushfire and don't do it if your life is not in danger, please. Those are called litterbugs and we put them in jail. Don't be the person who starts the bushfire. But if it's coming and you've got nowhere to go, light the biggest fire you can. That Let it run downwind of you such that when the bushfire comes, you go and stand where the fire has already been. Such that there's nothing left to burn and it'll just pass you by. So it is with God. God's wrath is coming like fire. And the only safe place there is, is where it has already burnt. Where the wrath has already fallen on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a staggering idea. I mean, it's frightful to begin with, the thought that we face that sort of an oncoming fire. But it's staggering to think that Jesus would die for his enemies. Sacrifice yourself, not for lovely people. God wasn't sitting up in heaven going, oh, look at those little humans down there. Oh, their little chubby cheeks. I just want to go and die for them. They're so cute. And lo-. No, we were his enemies. We were against him in everything we do and stood for. Have a look at verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die, right? You hear the stories of the sacrifice of the parent for their child or the spouse for one another or whatever it might be. But God demonstrates, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were the enemies of God, he chose to sacrifice his son. People want to take this idea of the love of God and twist it. God is love, we say. So therefore, that means I can do whatever I want. Because he's just a loving God. He's going to let me get away. He doesn't mind. Love is love and just let it be. And I can do whatever I want. It'll be okay. God is love. That's to seriously misunderstand it. God is love means this. It means that the God who is angry at sin and at sinners chooses to take the punishment they deserve on himself. That's love. And that is the critical, absolutely special moment that changes everything. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It changes our past. It changes the future. And it changes how we live now. I want to briefly this morning run through those three ideas. How it is that the cross changes the past, our future, and then the present. We'll go in that order. The cross and the past. Come back to verse 1 with me. See, the first thing that the death of Jesus does is it gives us justification. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith. That's an act in the past. We have been justified. For those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus, they have been justified. What does that word mean? I've used it a lot. It's a legal term. It means declared not guilty. Even though we were guilty, declared not guilty. Do you, want, do you remember the Sunday school? Anyone been to Sunday school? Remember the, the, the way of remembering what justified means? Just as if I'd, right? Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. And note, this is a past reality. If you are a Christian, it's not something that you're like, oh, I don't know. Am I going to be okay with God? 
Is my sin going to be able to be dealt with? Am I going to be good enough? No. In the past, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the cross where he died, it's just as if I'd never sinned. It's amazing. But wait. There's more. Not just justified in the past, but, again, verse 1, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Not just declared guilt, not guilty. It's not the big judge, the judge who says, all right, fine, you're not guilty, off you go, I don't want to see you back again. Not the classic kind of stern judge, no. Here there is peace. No more enmity, no more hatred, no more uncertainty. It's another one of those big Christian words, atonement. Do you, remember how to, do you know how to remember what the meaning of atonement is? Since, since we're doing the Sunday school ones, right? At one moment, atonement, at one moment, us and God joined back together. Peace between us. Justified, at peace, but wait, there's more. It gets better. Verse 10, we have been reconciled. If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? It's not just that we have been declared not guilty and at peace. God has taken two parties that were separate and brought them together. Friends. In fact, family. Christianity is not about morality. I mean, it has moral tones to it and it brings about a changed morality. But at its heart, Christianity is not about morality. It's not about right or wrong or you somehow performing your way into heaven. It's about relationship. It's about being restored, reconciled back into a right relationship with God. So in the cross, we have been justified. We have peace with God. We have been reconciled to him. But wait, there's more. Come back to verse 1. Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God, through whom, verse 2, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. In the cross, we have God's favour, his mercy, his whole disposition transformed. He is now for us rather than being against us. And so, friends, if you struggle with guilt, if you struggle with the sense of your sin weighing upon you, if you struggle with what is in the past, then please know that if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus, you have been justified. You have been found not guilty. You have peace with God. The war is ended. You have been reconciled, brought back into relationship with him. And you are now standing in his grace, his favour towards you. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's marvellous. The cross changes our past. The cross also changes our future. It's caught up there in that word that we read in verse 2, hope. Right? We have gained access, as we read again verse 2, through Jesus we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand as we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Christians are people of hope. We use the word hope very differently. 
Uh, we mean all sorts of things by it. Although they usually have that sense of, I really want something to happen. That's what we mean when we say, I hope that. I really want this to happen. Although it's usually uncertain. I really hope that we might win something in the cricket. A very uncertain sort of thing. I want it to happen. It's a bit of a pipe dream maybe. But, although we won a one day, didn't we? Anyway, that's not real cricket. Right. I hope that it turns out okay, we say. Very vague. Nothing concrete or definite about that. I would like things to be okay for you in the future. I don't really know why. We can be specific. I hope your exam goes well. I hope that doctor's report is favourable. But even then, it's kind of, well, it may be, it may not be. Christian hope is different. Christian hope is based on a moment in the past. Christian hope is based on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus that guarantees the future. You remember what has happened in our past? We have been justified. We have been given peace. We have been reconciled. And because it's already all happened, our future, our hope is assured rather than uncertain. It's not that we vaguely want something to happen and it may or may not. We want something to happen and it will What do you hope for? As a Christian person, as somebody who knows and trusts Jesus, what do you hope for? Now this verse is an absolute challenge to my hopes, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Do you wake up each morning and think to yourself, what I really, really want today is for God to be glorified? Was, it, was that your thought this morning? When you, when you got up, you got out of bed and you thought to yourself, that's what I hope for today, that's what I hope for tomorrow, that's what I hope for the end of time, that God be glorified. Was that any, anyone? I mean, I don't, don't put you... Good man, Dean. Right? Be like Dean, as Dean is like Paul, as Paul is like Jesus. This is what the hope we have. Look at verse 2. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's not hope for ourselves, although we do get hope for ourselves. It's hope for God and his glory. Christianity is not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's a strange thought, isn't it? We're beneficiaries, but first and foremost, it is about God. It is fundamentally about his character being displayed. So Christianity brings with it a, uh, a Copernican revolution. Do you remember Nicholas Copernicus? Now remember that guy? Uh, I, I hated history and geology and astronomy. So I don't know why I know about him. But anyway, Nicholas Copernicus is the guy who was credited with coming up with this idea that the stars and the, plan- sorry, the planets in our galaxy revolve around the sun, not around the earth. I think I've got that one right. Have I got it right? Excellent. I've got a smile and a nod. See, people thought that the earth was at the center of everything and then it all revolved around the earth. And Copernicus came along and he said, that's not right. The sun is at the center and everything revolves around the sun. Now, as it turns out, there was another bloke who had the same idea 18 centuries earlier. Do you know that one? Do you know that was? Ah, there you go. Aristarchus of Samos. Do you remember that guy? No, we all remember Copernicus. Poor Aristarchus completely beside the point when you become a christian you get a copernican revolution life is no longer about you it's about god 
It's no longer about me and what I want to achieve, about my glory, about my hopes. It is now about God and what God wants to achieve and God's glory and God's hopes. I tell you, that's a challenge to me. Because most mornings I wake up and I just run through the list of what I would like God to do for me today. Rather than how I can live for his pleasure, for his glory. So here is the hope that we have. That God will be glorified. And the cross gives us that hope. See, it is at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that God's character is displayed in its most powerful form. His justice as he brings punishment to bear for sin and his mercy as he brings salvation on those who trust in Jesus. There is the supreme moment of the glory of God being displayed. A glory that one day everyone will see, whether they trust in the Lord Jesus or not. It's a hope for God's glory, but you know what? That also does bring with us our hope. For his glory will also be our glory because his character will be displayed in us. It's an astonishing, it's a marvellous thing. To be reconciled to God means that he begins to transform us to be like he is. So that the day of reckoning we show him. That is our hope. That God will be vindicated, that God will be honoured, that God will be praised, that God will be celebrated for who he is and that we will get to join in it. I hope that comes because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the cross changes our past as we are made right with God. It changes our future as we now have the sure, certain hope of seeing his glory displayed and of joining in with it. But it also changes our present. And I think that this is kind of both the strangest and the hardest part of this passage to grasp hold of. Have a look with me again at the second half of verse 2. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, not only do we rejoice in the hope, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. Rejoice in suffering? Really? I mean, as a church, there's some pretty serious suffering going on right now. There's a lot of grief. What kind of crazy person rejoices in pain? Well, it's the kind of person who understands God and understands the cross. It's all well and good, isn't it? Talk about glory and honor and joy and a bright future, but... Life now is hard, full of pain and difficulty, full of temptation and failing, it's full of tragedy and disappointment. In fact, Christians, we get our own special kind of suffering. There you go. Just by being Christian, we get our own special kind of suffering, persecution because of Jesus. Jesus does not make life easier, he makes life harder. I'm not a very good prosperity gospel preacher, am I? Christianity doesn't protect you from hardship, but it does give you strength to get through it. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a promise that this life will endure no pain. No, it gives it meaning. 
It gives us the knowledge that God can use even the things of this broken world, even the things of this cursed world, for good. He uses it to shape us, to mould us, to make us yearn for the future. We rejoice in suffering not because we like pain, but because of what it produces, because of what it does. What does it do? Verse 3. Not only so, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. It strengthens us. It gives us this endurance. It exercises our trust in God. When life's good and you've got it all sorted, you don't need to trust in anyone, do you? It's one of the contrasts, I think, between the Western world and parts where there is much greater poverty. The Christianity of people there often tends to be very passionate, very profound, very deep, because they have nothing other than God. Whereas for many of us, our Christianity is often a bit shallow and not particularly moved because, like, yeah, okay, I trust God, sure, but also I can basically get by day to day without him. There's something about poverty that builds resilience there's something about suffering that builds resilience there's something about knowing yourself to be weak that makes you depend upon God's strength and so God takes the times that are horrible and painful and builds perseverance in us and this perseverance then produces character tested character maturity of character. I quite enjoy Calvin and Hobbes. Anyone come across the, 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 the comics, Calvin and Hobbes comics? Uh, for my 21st birthday, one of my mates gave me every single one. I had like this stack of them. I don't know where they are now, anyway. And uh, Calvin Hobbes, Calvin is a little boy, and Hobbes is his stuffed tiger, and, uh, and who, who he imagines is real, and they go on all sorts of adventures. But it, it, Calvin's dad is this classic kind of stuck-in-the-mud, boring sort of character, who is always telling Calvin, the reason we are doing this thing that you hate doing is because it builds character. We're going camping. Why are we going camping? It's horrible because it builds character. Why do I have to walk home? Because it builds character. Now, I want to talk about that sort of character. It's not just a yes kind of, you can, you can be a manly man sort of character. No, the sort of character that this builds, that this perseverance through suffering builds, is the character of God. That's the character that we want as Christians. It's the character that trusts in Him. And so as we go through hardship and we persevere, God is at work producing in us the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is able to say, not my will but yours, I entrust myself to you. And so this character then produces hope. Remember, what are we hoping? We hope in the glory of God. How is that going to be revealed in us? As God's character is produced in us. How is God's character producing us? As we persevere, entrusting ourselves to him through suffering. Suffering, friends, has a very powerful effect in the Christian life. It reminds us that this world is not it. It teaches us to not idolise the things of this world. It makes us long for heaven and the end of suffering. It teaches us to see this world as broken. It teaches us to hang on 
to endure with patience and trust. It reminds us of God's promises that better is yet to come. It pushes us to pray for God's kingdom. It leads us to depend on him. And it makes us long for his glory. The cross of the Lord Jesus changes the past, changes the future. And it teaches us how to live now. Now I want to end with two reflections. One of them really is a very big picture reflection. And one of them is very personal. Big picture firstly. We have to remember that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is at the very heart of it all. There is pressure on us from all sorts of places and in all sorts of ways to dumb down the cross. To just just push it aside a little bit. How about, how about that? Just a little bit or, or, or maybe a lot bit. Okay, however it's going to come. And a couple of the ways in which it happens at the moment in particular, firstly is, well, people aren't really all that bad, are they? We're mostly okay, right? People are good. And so we don't need the cross. And Joe was telling me a story about a church he was at a while back where the parish council had met and were trying to decide how they were going to refer to the people in their suburb. Like just as a church, when we're talking about others, what are we going to call them? And the minister said, well, that's easy. We call them pagans. That's what they are. And the parish council said, oh, no, we can't do that. It's a bit harsh. It's a bit strong. They debated it for two hours. And the result was that they were going to refer to them as the nice people of our suburb. Isn't that lovely? So why do they need Jesus if they're already nice people? Why do they need the cross if we're already mostly okay? People are sinful. The other way in which people try to push the cross aside at the moment is to say that the punishment that is due for sin isn't that big. I mean, to talk about God sacrificing his own son and then anyone who doesn't believe in that is going to go to hell. I mean, that's, oh, that's a bit full on. How about we just lighten up on that bit a little bit? God's wrath. No, God's love, remember? And so you end up with this, well, we don't really need the cross. There's always going to be pressure to do it away. But friends, if we lose the cross, we lose justification. If you take the cross out of the heart of Christianity, you are no longer right before God. For you have sinned and no one has paid for it. So you will. We lose the peace that we have with God. We are still enemies. We lose any sort of future certainty that we might have. That we're going to one day see the glory of God. That we're one day going to share in it. We're just back to the uncertainty of war. We lose the ability to face hardship. Because now it's just random. There's no purpose to it anymore. It's not God at work to make us like himself. And so we lose all hope. We must keep the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ in the absolute center and heart and forefront of all that we do. And so my second reflection, and this is a very personal one, is that you? Is the Lord Jesus Christ dead and raised to new life at the very heart of who you are? At the very heart of how you are right with God on the basis of his death. So if the Christian, we're no longer at war. It's now time of armistice. God has sued for peace. He offers it to you today. All you need to do is entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death and his resurrection. That one central point of history, that one time that changes everything. We thank you for our past, that you have justified us in him. Given us peace, reconciled us together again with you. Brought us to stand in your grace. Father, thank you for the hope that that gives us, that sure and certain future where your glory will be seen by all and where we will get to share in it, displaying your character. And so, Father, thank you that you teach us how to live now, even through the tough times. You teach us that that hope that we have will bring about our transformation. Father, give us perseverance, producing us your character. Fill us with hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.